This episode is sponsored by Blinkist. Now, one of our favorite books is The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People by Stephen Covey. In that, he talks about the Eisenhower Matrix, which is like a decision matrix of the type of tasks, the type of activities that you do. And it splits them up in urgent versus important. We spend so much time in the urgent quadrants. We're thinking about all the things that we have to do right now, whether it's replying to that email, answering that phone call, completing that end of month report. We're so caught up in the urgent that we never really cross across into the things that are not so urgent, but are vitally important. And one of those things that is the perfect mix of not urgent, but important is learning. And Blinkist is a great way that you can learn more in less time. Because Blinkist is for anyone who really cares about learning but doesn't have a lot of time. What it does, it takes the key ideas and insights from over 4,000 non-fiction bestsellers in more than 27 categories and puts them into 15-minute text and audio explainers. And right now, Blinkist has a special offer just for our audience. Go to Blinkist.com forward slash what you will learn to start a free seven-day trial and get 25% off a Blinkist premium membership. That's Blinkist spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T dot com forward slash what you will learn. Welcome back to What You Will Learn. My name is Adam Ashton. And my name is Adam Jones. Today we're taking you through the best bits of What the Dog Saw by Malcolm Gladwell. We haven't got enough Malcolm Gladwell in the feed. It's been way too long. He was a history graduate uh, from the University of Toronto. He uh, got to the point where he'd finished his undergraduate, but his grades weren't good enough to stay on for any post-grad work. He'd actually been rejected by more than a dozen advertising agencies. He sent out a few applications for fellowships. He wanted to go somewhere exotic. All of those went nowhere, got a bunch of rejections. He was pretty much left to one thing, and that was writing. But lucky for Big Malk, he was pretty good. He is a good writer. And uh, because of that, his journalistic trajectory was pretty wild and a story within itself. Uh, he went from some bit of a no-name Indian-based American spectator uh, to the doors of the New Yorker, which is obviously a huge magazine. And over time, he established himself as one of the most imaginative non-fiction writers uh, really of all time. He'd effectively trademarked himself by owning this brand of social psychology, something that he'd honed over decades working at this magazine. He had this confident, optimistic pieces. He talked about geniuses. He talked about multinational corporations. He talked about the quirks of human behavior. And he really tied them all together through this this style that's become pretty trademark Gladwellian style and plenty of other authors uh, replicate and rip off. Yeah, 100%. What he's really good at, he points out all the truths that are just simply under our noses. And this, I've had a bit of a dig at him in, in past episodes <laughs> for that, but it's actually true. It is a real skill to point out obvious truths and use stories in a very clever way to, to be able to point them out. Yeah, so that's sort of what he does. He takes this, takes an idea, he recasts it as a human story, he works through it all the way to this natural conclusion, revealing different pieces of the puzzle along the way and taking uh, strips off conventional wisdom as he goes. He, he says that his pieces are meant to be like little adventures. Which they, they are. And uh, in this book, What the Dog Saw, what he's done is bundled together his favorite articles from the New Yorker since he joined them as a young writer and, he, you know, the place where he went from nobody to being the Gladwellian master that Admittedly, we this, this, today. This is probably like a good bit of a cash grab if I was to give a bit of a dig. It's like he'd written three massive bestsellers, The Tipping Point, Blink, Outliers, and then the publishers come to him and say, hey, you've got all these articles. Do you want to whip a couple together and we'll sell it for 20 bucks each? And <laughs> that's, that's really all he's done is put his different articles well, together. Well, he duped us, didn't he? <laughs> <laughs> so what we've done is we've picked out our favorites We're going to look at two different types of failure. We're going to look at choking and we're going to look at panicking. 
Next, we're going to look at two different types of geniuses. We're going to look at prodigies versus late bloomers. And then we're going to look at two different types of secrets, puzzles versus mysteries. It's the 1993 Wimbledon final and it's the third and final set. We have Jana Novotna. She's leading 4-1 and serving 40-30. She's only one point away from winning the game. It's the biggest match of her life. And effectively, she's one point from winning this game and only five points off claiming the most coveted championship in tennis and the biggest match and prize of her life. So now she's standing poised and confident, going through her usual routine, bouncing the ball a couple of times, lobs the ball up to serve, and then she yanks it too hard and the ball went into the net. She goes again on her second serve. And visually, it's much worse. The ball toss, the arch of the back, the power, it's all slumped. And what she's done is double faulted. Now it's 40-40 juice. On the next point, she served okay. But when uh, she was playing Steffi Graf, she popped it back too high. And Novotno ran in, but she missed her volley straight into the net. So it's advantage Graf. And then at game point, she's cooked it again and she's lost this game. So all of a sudden... If she had have just won that one more point, she would have been leading 5-3, only a game away from winning a Wimbledon title. Now it's 4-2. It's uh, psychologically a lot closer. Steffi Graf's turn to serve. She wins easily. Now it's 4-3. It's Novotna's next serving game. She actually double faulted three times, and then she hit a forehand very wide and lost this game. Uh, and now it's 4-4. A very different proposition now, sitting at 4-4 at a very tight battle. And it's all fallen apart for Novotna here. Steffi Graf made really quick work of her in the next two games, coming back from a 1-4 down to winning the set 6-4 and in the end claiming victory and hoisting the Wimbledon Championship Cup right in the air. And obviously, Novotna is pretty upset with herself. So what happened? We've got this person who's at the top of their game. They're leading. They've been performing strongly the whole game. And all of a sudden, she just completely falls to pieces did she suddenly realize how close she was to victory and she got nervous did she suddenly realize she'd never won a tournament before did she sudden suddenly realize she was playing Steffi Graf who was the greatest tennis player of her generation she'd been ranked number one for 377 weeks in a row what happened here yeah we've seen all kinds of choking examples I remember the grand final of the Australian Football League about what five or six years ago when St Kilda was in it so this is the leading sport in Australia remember a player, Stephen Milne, he was our best goal scorer and he had a kick-ass year. But in this grand final, he was running with the ball into an open goal, I remember, and he kind of just stumbled. He forgot <laughs> how to run and missed the ball. And it was like three or four times he did that and it was a classic example of choking. Yeah. Now, even Nick Rewalt, the captain who was the superstar of the sport at the time, he was in this all this space, waltzed into goal, but he took it so casually and someone came and smothered it and <laughs> very quickly went from six points to one. So in these examples like Novotny here playing tennis, she's almost unrecognizable, right? Like if you saw her the day before playing around, hitting the ball, she's like the most elite tennis player on the planet. But here at the very end, when she's choking, she looks like a beginner and she's just missing the simplest of shots. So basically the same, to the, the same level as you and me, Asho. Maybe not that far, but pretty bad. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if I was ever quite at her level. <laughs> Even still, I think she was a few steps above me. But... What this section, what this article looks at is, you know, pilots crash, uh, scuba divers drown, or people make simple mistakes all the time. These professionals that you think are at the top of their field make simple mistakes under the glare of the, the pressure. The basketball player is going to miss the easy free throw. The golfer, he's going he's to be three foot away from, from sinking that putt and he misses it completely. In sports, we say that they, they choked or they panicked. We use them interchangeably. But Gladwell says that choking and panicking are actually two very different things. 
So to understand the difference between choking and panicking, we need to look at the two different types of learning. And the first is explicit. So if you think about tennis, just before you start, what you do is you're told how to hold the racket, where to stand, how to move left to right. And as you're doing that, your brain is kind of running through the motions and you're really thinking quite carefully and consciously about how you do it. So that's explicit learning. So every time you hit the ball, you're thinking about the angle of the racket. You're thinking about how hard you have to hit it to get it onto the other side of the court. You don't want to hit it too soft. You don't want to hit it too hard. You've got to think how much spin do you put on it? How far back do you swing? You're thinking of all these things. It's almost like a you know, thinking fast and slow. It's like a system two, slow thinking. You're very actively, very consciously thinking about all of the things that you need to do in this type of explicit learning. But after you've played a few years and you've hit thousands of shots, all of a sudden, it's no longer explicitly. You're not thinking about the top spin and the moving and the racket and everything like that. You're just hitting the ball mm. and it, everything just goes into implicit or using thinking fast and slow. It moves into that system one territory and it's unconscious, all your movements and, and things you do. That's it. Your body has worked out how much force do you need, how much angle do you need, how much twist do you need. Uh, after, you know, at the start, you're thinking very actively about how do you hit the ball, but it, you know, at the point where you become this sort of professional level, you're just thinking, okay, the ball comes and I hit it. If someone asks you how do you hit a forehand, you just say you just swing and you just hit it because your body knows exactly what to do. So to make it to the top of your field and especially the Wimbledon final, obviously you need to be someone who's been practicing tennis your whole life, just like Jana Devotny here. Intellectually, when she was younger, she knew how to hit the ball and hold the racket and everything and she'd been through all that explicit learning and she'd also hit the ball thousands and thousands of times to the point where it turned into implicit and she just did things automatically. So what happens when you're a professional at this level, you're in the middle of a game, you're in flow, you're running purely on implicit learning. You're not thinking about the technicalities of how to hit the ball. You're just thinking, there's a ball, I'm going to go hit it to the other side. It's implicit. You're running purely on this implicit system. But when the stress kicks in, what happens is under the pressure, your explicit systems can creep in and start to take over. So when the pressure had kicked in, she double faulted, the game was getting tighter, she was starting to think too much. She'd lost her fluidity, she'd lost her flow, she'd lost her touch, she was double faulting, she was missing easy shots. All the things that she would normally be doing implicitly, she was thinking about exactly how she had to do it. She effectively reverted to being a beginner and she was thinking too hard about the technicalities of how to hit simple shots. Yeah, she'd lost that subconscious flow and she thought that the way out was just thinking her way out and trying harder and trying harder. But as soon as you get in your brain, mm. you lose those thousands and thousands of hits and you just go back to when you were a kid hitting the ball around back into explicit mode. So that is choking. Yeah, that's choking. That's lining up in footy in front of goal. If you just you know casually walk in and kick the ball, you run implicit. It goes pretty straight. If you're thinking, oh my God, it's a, the siren's just gone. We're three points down. I need to kick this so we can win. The crowd's Half the crowd's cheering, half the crowd's booing. I've got blokes yelling at me. I need to kick this perfectly. I need to drop the ball perfectly straight. I need to swing my leg back perfectly. I need to have the right amount of steps. The more you think about the technicalities, the more you're going to shank it and miss. Yeah, and if you're in the case of Stephen Bloody Milne, uh, <laughs> you forget how to run, you just trip over your own bloody <laughs> shoelace. That's it. So that's choking when we're thinking too hard. But panicking is something entirely different. And Gladwell brings in a, a different story here. He talks about some NASA specialists who were doing some scuba diving training. What they wanted to do was, it, you know, in case you, you go off in a spaceship and it crashes, then you need to learn how to, how to operate underwater. 
<laughs> Link that to me, right? <laughs> Explain that to me. Okay, that would. Just, I don't know. I don't know what they were doing, but they need to learn how to scuba dive. <laughs> I don't know why NASA. Tra- Actually, it's a good question. Why do NASA trainers? Fuck. Public money, mate. And they're having a big party and doing a lot of fun stuff. Do you reckon SpaceX pilots are going down underwater? I don't think so. <laughs> well, so we've got this. Uh, we've got uh, Sophie. She was 19 at the time. She was doing a uh, open water diving certification. They've been doing it for two weeks. And this was their first dive where they went out into the open water without an instructor. It was just her and her buddy. It was a very, very straightforward, simple exercise. What you do is you go down, you adjust your gear so you stay stationary. And then what you do, you've got two regulators. That's a bit where you breathe through. You've got your main one. You've got a spare one clipped to your vest. And when you first go underwater, you need to test them both, make sure they're both working. So first... You check your regular one. If that's working, that's great. Then when you go down, you take out your main regulator. You grab your spare one. You put it in your mouth. You exhale to blow any excess water out. And then you start breathing normally. So it's a very simple routine thing. Then you switch back to your main regulator. You give the okay. You give the all clear. And you've effectively, you're ready to go diving. So when Sophie was doing this exercise, she unclipped her spare, took her main regulator out of her mouth, put in the spare then exhaled to clear the line. Then she breathed in, she gulped a whole bunch of seawater and obviously you're all the way down at the bottom of the ocean. So you're getting a little bit worried here, but she tried to remain calm and she tried to exhale again to clear the water out of the tube, but something clicked and the hose must have come out of the tank or something. So she started gushing out of the regulator and bubbling in her face and uh, Sophie here, she's panicking. Yeah, that's a big panic. You're, you're 40 feet underwater. You can't get back to the surface in time. You Every time you breathe, you're sucking in water. You can't get any air. All you're thinking is get air. You revert to this primitive uh, biological drives where you just need to get the absolute basics and that's to breathe. So Sophie, she's got her buddy there just breathing away, <laughs> having a good time underwater here and, she's, and her brain's going, get some fucking air, Sophie. So Sophie, she went for that, went to grab her buddy's air. Obviously, morality's out of the window when your brain's just <laughs> taken over like that. And and then at some moment, she realized, all right, what am, and uh, she stopped trying to take the buddy. And then the buddy came and helped out and put the air back in her mouth mm. and you know the problem was solved. Yeah. <laughs> it was quite a simple thing. But what this panic does is it wipes out your short-term memory. So Sophie, she'd taken her main regulator out and her spare regulator was the one that wasn't working. And she'd also seen her buddy do the exact test. So what she's got is she her main one, she could have just taken that and put that back in her mouth and it would have been fine. Or she just saw that her buddy had done the test and her spare one worked fine, so she could have grabbed her buddy's spare one. But because of this perceptual narrowing, because the panic has taken over, all she thought was, my buddy's breathing, I'm going to rip that one out of her mouth. So there was basically four regulators underwater. One didn't work, so she tried to rip her mates out instead of just going for one of the ones that was just floating around spare. So panicking is a very conventional failure. It's something that we can understand pretty easily. In the case of Sophie, if she just had another couple of years training or been through that situation a few more times, it's very unlikely that she'd have that same response. This really fits in with what we believe in the world. Performance ought to increase with experience. The more you try something, the more likely you are to get better at it with deliberate practice. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So we think that anytime somebody fails, all they need to do is go back and do more practice. But choking, that hardly makes any sense at all. You've got Novotna, she's at the top of her field, she's one of the top two tennis players at the time, she's got all the experience. You might think the only way for her to get better is to go back to the practice courts and and keep practicing serving, but that's not really going to help her. She's been doing that for the last 20 years. 
So the problem is that we always assume that the type of failures are the same and we assume that they're all based on panic. And because of that, the prescription of the solution, it's always just to go out there and buckle down and work harder. But it's not really going to help. Novotna, she's already put in all the work and another 10,000 hours isn't going to do anything for her. Yeah, exactly. The, the pressure that comes with a Wimbledon final or maybe for you if it's, you know, you've been studying for a whole year and you get to the end of year exams and you start to choke and you're not performing as well, just going back and studying more isn't going to help. What it really comes down to is an ability to cope with the pressure. The pressure is always going to be there. Anything you care deeply about, whether that's winning the Wimbledon final or passing that end of year exam, the pressure is going to be there. And if you let that pressure take over and you start to choke and you start to revert back to your explicit systems, that's when you can fail and that's when practice isn't actually going to help you overcome it. So choking is about thinking too much. Panic is about thinking too little. Choking is about loss of instinct and panic is reversion to this instinct. So it's kind of good news if you're a panicker because you can go out there and try harder. But Gladwell here, if you're a choker, there's, there's no real <laughs> solution, is there? It's just Bad like luck. you're on your own. <laughs> you're cooked. When we think about geniuses, the popular conception is that it's inextricably linked with this natural innate talent. We think that doing something truly creative, we need this freshness and exuberance and this energy of youth. Think of some of the famous examples. Orson Welles' masterpiece, Citizen Kane, he wrote that when he was 25. You got Herman Melville, he wrote a book every year throughout his 20s and he capped it off with Moby Dick at age 32. You got Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart, he wrote this breakthrough piano concerto number nine in E-flat major, one of Jones' favorites. Mm. He was only 21 when he wrote that. And researchers agree with this hypothesis. Youth is a massive advantage. There was this creativity researcher from the pub, James Kaufman. <laughs> he said, poets peak young. Mihal Csikszentmihalyi, the author of Flow, he agrees. He said, the most creative lyric verse is believed to be written in the young. And Howard Gardner, this Harvard creative expert, he said that lyric poetry is a domain where talent is discovered early, burns brightly, and then peters out at an early age. Yeah, so they're saying that in, in poetry specifically, all these researchers, they said that youth is the massive, massive advantage in poetry. But then an, a different study looked at, he found your, your T.S. Eliot, your Sylvia Plath, your Robert Frost. They looked through all of the most important poems of all time. And of those top 10 poems, they looked at their ages. One was 23, one was 28. That's that's pretty solid. That's pretty young. But then you got you know, 41, 42, 59. So this stat doesn't really support the hypothesis that youth is necessarily a, a massive advantage. Yeah, a lot of researchers cop it in a lot of the books we do actually. <laughs> a lot of it, they claim one thing and then there's research that goes out and takes it down. So I think there's a, a whole bunch of confirmation bias out there, which is unavoidable. Very much so. Now, there's one good study. I reckon that it's probably straddled both worlds pretty well. It's called Old Masters and Young Geniuses, the two life cycles of artistic creativity. So he says that you've got your young ones, the ones we listed off, the, the Orson Welles, the Herman Melville, they're your young ones at age 25. But on the other hand, you've got, say, like an Alfred Hitchcock who's whipping out Psycho at age you know, 55, 61, uh, 63, he went through all, the, all of his massive ones later in life. You've got your, you know, you've got your Mark Twain ripping out Huckleberry Finn at 49. You've got Robinson Crusoe. The author was 58 at the time. So this study was saying that there's, you've got either the ones who start early and start strong, but then you've also got the legends who come later in life. So the perfect personification of these two ideas of the old master and young genius is Picasso and Cezanne. So I don't know who Cezanne is. 
sounds like a pretty good Another painter. Artist, I think yeah. we'll be able to find out. But Picasso, he's really the classic prodigy. His first masterpiece popped out at the age of 20 and uh, he went on a wild tear pumping out all sorts of just wild art that uh, still hold huge value today by the age of 26. So, you know, he fits this stereotype perfectly. Cezanne, he was quite the opposite. He didn't at all at the very start. In the Muse d'Orsay, the greatest collection of Cezannes in the world, all of his most famous works came at the end of his career. It was an interesting economic study that they found that the average Picasso painting that he painted in his mid-20s was worth four times more than a painting Picasso did in his 60s. But for Cezanne, it was actually the opposite. His paintings he did in his 60s was worth 15 times more than any painting he'd done in his 20s. So there was this freshness and exuberance of youth that meant everything to Picasso, but absolutely worked the other way for Cezanne. Cezanne here, he's a late bloomer. Uh, we know all about the prodigies and the geniuses like the Picasso's just kicking us when they're young. But for some reason, our society kind of forgets about the account of the Cezannes, the late bloomers of the world who took a long time to bloom. To dig a little deeper to try to work out the difference between a, a prodigy, an early genius and, a, and an old master, a late genius, a late bloomer, we need to look at the two different approaches to creativity. If you look at Picasso, he can be what we label as a conceptual approach. Picasso, he always have a clear idea of what he wanted to do and then he went and executed his vision. Picasso, he once said, I can hardly understand the importance given to the word research. In my opinion, search means nothing. It's all about finding. I never use trials or experiments or research. I know what I want to paint and then I paint it. Late bloomers take the opposite approach. They go down uh, open-ended exploration rabbit holes their goals are imprecise so their procedure is tentative and incremental so for them it's all about experimentation you try something and then the next time you have a crack at it you experiment a little and try a little bit better you do that over and over and over and eventually your stuff ends up somewhere much better so a classic example is uh, Cezanne he was painting a portrait of this bloke Gustave Jeffrey don't know who he is, but he was getting a portrait made of him, so he must have been someone special. Uh, what Cezanne did, he made him come over the course of three months for 80 times. Big Gustav had to sit in this rickety old chair while, while Cezanne was doing more and more different versions of painting him, trying to get the nose perfect, trying to get the ears perfect. He'd make him come at 8 a.m. in the morning, sit there on this stool until 11.30 at night without a break. And then eventually, Cezanne, by the end of the 80th time, he thought, this is cooked, I'm done. Just took a knife, slashed the canvas in half and said, Gustav, sorry, mate, this ain't happening. Oh, mate, <laughs> Gustav's what? He's invested a lot of time in there. And uh, being an important dude, you'd be pretty pissed off. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Ma- exactly. But that's like the, the open-ended exploration. It takes a long time to get there. Sometimes you never even get there. Mark Twain was the same. He followed his trial and error. His routine procedure seems to have been to start with a novel and some kind of structural plan and eventually you'd think that's defective. So he create a new plot and overcome the previous difficulty, rewrite it again, and he just go through this rewrite, <laughs> rewrite, rewrite. And uh, after a very long time, he'd, he'd land on something that was a little bit golden. So the Cezannes and the Mark Twains of the the late bloomer world, their results or their lack of early results, I guess, it's not due to any defect in character or distraction or lack of ambition. It wasn't they were just floating around, going to pubs, trying to pick up girls or boys. Uh, They weren't doing any of this crazy stuff, going overseas, going wild. They were working very, very hard. And it was actually just that their version of creativity, their version of trial and error was necessary and it took a long time to ever come to fruition. So we often think that late bloomer means late starter. 
We figured that someone who rocks up on the scene later, like Suzanne and Twainy, they were probably doing something else at the very start and they switched. And we assumed that if they started this new path earlier, then they'd achieve the same success much earlier. But this isn't always true. Suzanne, he actually started painting from the exact same age as Picasso. And we just think he discovered it later. We think that we're always good. And they were just hanging out on the fringes and it took a while until they were discovered. But it's not true. It turns out that they were just trying all along the whole time and it just turned out that their success came late in their careers in that one field. Yeah, that's it. Just because they were a late bloomer, it doesn't mean they started later. It doesn't mean that they were always good, but no one knew about them. There's a story here where Cezanne did this painting called The Banquet when he was age 21. Art critics, basically, I don't know what their fancy art word was, but basically they said, this is a piece of shit. And mm-hmm. so it wasn't that Cezanne was just floating around doing nothing. He was actually trying really hard. He was just He was actually just not any good when he was younger in life. And I think it, it probably ties into, like, if you Google Picasso and if you Google Cezanne, you can see two very different styles of paintings. You've got Picasso, which is very original, very unique, uh, all this abstract, weird blotches of stuff going all over. This, uh, you know, you've got a bloke's face. It doesn't look like anything like a bloke's face. It's very unique, very different, whereas Cezanne is, like, picture perfect. It literally, like, looks like a photograph. And you can sort of tell that, well, obviously, one's going to take a lot more time to develop that kind of skill. Yeah. Another interpretation is that Picasso just drew just, just threw paint on a – have you seen some of those ones? It's yeah, like pretty wild, aren't Basically they? just throwing paint on a wall and whipping out a good narrative about it and just saying it's, oh, yeah, it's the, it's the tit of the East European tiger or something and, <laughs> and all of a sudden you're selling it for a lot more than it's worth. Exactly, exactly. He's done, he's, he did pretty well, the old Picasso, he with some well. stuff that it looks like a three-year-old could have done potentially. Uh, but the punchline here, I guess, is that some geniuses, our, our young prodigies – They're the types that know exactly what they should do and then they go and do it. But some geniuses, actually the late bloomers, they come from trialing, they come from failing, they come from writing, rewriting, abandoning, starting again, trying something different altogether. And along this road, they actually look like a failure until they get good. At the time of writing in 2006, Osama bin Laden's whereabouts was a puzzle. The US couldn't find him because they didn't have enough information. It was a simple answer. Obviously, he's just hanging out at a place at a specific time and all he needed to have was just enough pieces of the puzzle to put it all together and eventually you could work out the answer. So the key to finding Bin Laden would have come from getting an extra piece of information from somebody on the inside. If you contrast that to what would happen after Saddam Hussein was overthrown, again, obviously, this is 2006, so power of hindsight we probably work it out but at the time this was a, a mystery there was no simple factual answer there was it involved judgment assessments predictions estimations theories hypotheses it was a mystery ultimately no one knew the clear answer and it, all it came down to was what did you think was going to happen now puzzles are hard to solve when there's not enough information you just need to go out there find information and you'll get the answer mysteries on the other hand they're hard to solve when there's too much information So the distinction between a puzzle and a mystery, it's not a trivial one. Let's look at, say, September 11 as a big big secret that we have to try and unlock. If you treated September 11 as a puzzle that could have been solved, then your response is to increase the amount of intelligence you get. You get more spies, you try to send a few more people undercover on the inside and try to gather as much information as possible because you think that every new piece of the puzzle makes a solution clearer. But if you treated September 11 as a mystery, then adding more information doesn't necessarily help. It all comes down to the quality of the synthesis and the analysis of that information. So this leads us into 
one of the most well-known company collapses in history. And that's the story of Enron. You might have seen the documentary, The Smartest Guys in the Room. I think it's on Netflix or something, which documents it really well. But if you look at history's narrative of it, this is what Wikipedia says about uh, Jeffrey Skilling, who was the CEO. He developed a staff of executives that by using accounting loopholes, special purpose entities, and poor financial reporting, they were able to hide billions of dollars in debt from failed deals and projects. So that's the the Wikipedia explanation and poor, uh, or maybe not poor Jeffrey Skilling, but Jeffrey Skilling copped 292 months in prison. That's 24 years. His his, uh, his lawyer didn't try to fight it. All he pled for was a, was leniency. He says if you reduce this by 10 months, it means that he can go to a low security facility. But the judge said, sorry, mate, I'm throwing you your little white collar uh, crime. We're throwing you in with the rapists and the gangsters and the murderers in the in the high security prison for the next twenty four years. So good luck, mate. I think a big white collar bloke like Jeffrey there, he would have wouldn't have been a good time in the. He would have been able to defend himself. I don't think. Let's put it that way. I don't think so. So if you sat through the trial of Jeffrey Skilling, you would come out of it thinking that everybody they're just trying to solve a puzzle. The prosecution said that the company had conducted shady side deals and no one really quite understood them. The executives were accused of withholding all their information from the shareholders and they looked at Skilling. He said, he's a liar, he's a thief, he's a drunk and he's the one to blame for Mm. obscuring all this vital information that the shareholders should have had. The central assumption from the prosecution is just saying, hey, we were not told enough. If we had more information, this could have been avoided. But Big Gladwell says the prosecutor is wrong. Enron was not a puzzle. They couldn't have benefited from more information. All the information was there is actually the analysis that was wrong. Enron was a mystery. The first element that made Enron a mystery was their accounting system. So they used something called a mark to market, which is a fancy word of saying how uh, the firm was engaging in complicated financial trading on long-term contracts. So for example, let's say they landed a $100 million contract with the California government to supply electricity for the next 20 years or something. Over time, the electricity, it's going to change in price. There's going to be inflation. There's going to be moving variables. How much is this contract actually worth? So you know that obviously $100 million is a shitload of money. You've got to work out how do you account for it. What their system was was saying, okay, let's make some projections. Today, this contract is worth this much money. So they market to market saying it's worth this today. When things change, that next month they're going to readjust it. Okay, maybe it's not worth $100 million, Maybe now it's worth $96 million. And then the next month was a good month. Oh, it's up to $102 million. So what they're doing is they're just trying to predict the future based on all the information at hand. And when things change, they adjust the price. Yeah, is, it's, a, it's a pretty standard standard procedure. It's, it's how you do it. It's pretty dodgy. It's like uh, saying, I earned a million dollars this year, projecting in my future <laughs> cash flows and everything. <laughs> Mate, I didn't, I'm not a millionaire. No, but it's, I think it's a, it's a pretty standard way to do it. The confusion comes when you've got some cash and some paper. So if you say, hey, we made $10 million of profit, it could either mean that you've got $10 million of extra cash in the bank or it could mean that you're expecting over the next 20 years that you're going to make $10 million. So it's a very big difference between cash profits and paper profits. Uh, still dodgy, mate. <laughs> <laughs> well, what we've actually got, so uh, in uh, the second quarter of 2000, Enron said that we've you know, we made a, a billion dollars. Um, 
but the difference here is that uh, just a general no-name stock analyst, he looked a little bit deeper, uh, read publicly available information, and he found that $747 million of that profit was unrealized, meaning that this was paper projections. When you take that out, they'd made a big cash loss, so they'd actually lost money, but they said, hey, we've made so much money because in the future, we're going to get it. So, that's uh, using their mark-to-market system, it muddied the waters a little bit, uh, all of the information was there. It just took a little bit more digging to find out the real answer. Now, the prosecution said that Enron had hidden important truths, but everything this stock analyst learned about the company had been through reading all the publicly available information. So, they weren't withholding anything. Mm. All it took was just one hardcore stock analysis to run through it all and come up with the conclusions they did. Now, the next element that turned Enron into a mystery was its reliance on special purpose entities. Again, it sounds like a pretty effed up system, but (laughs) it's one of those things that all your big corporations out there are doing. And what they do is if your company isn't looking healthy, a bank may not lend money directly to you because of your company. So, they might charge a ridiculously high interest rate, so you're losing a lot of cash in the process. So, what a company might do instead is they'll make all these sub-companies that according to the bank, aren't linked to this original company, but they're borrowing money on their own accord. So, despite this big company taking on all the money and investments and the risk, the banks don't see it that way. So, they get a lower interest rate in the process. Yeah, Gladwell says it's pretty commonplace in corporate America. It's a perfectly legal loophole to get better deals. It's it's legal. That doesn't necessarily mean it's moral. That's a, that's a different question. But Enron, even though you've got this one big company with 3,000 different long-term contracts, they broke those contracts up into 3,000 different special purpose entities. Now, each of these special purpose entities had over 1,000 pages of information about each one. So, we're talking about a 3 million page document. Now, that's a shitload of information. Um, it's all the information you could possibly need, but it's sort of like, okay, you've got all the pieces of the puzzle, but how do you actually analyze all of this information? So, you've got 3,000 companies and the paperwork for each entity is over 1,000 pages. So, we're looking at about 3 million pages to go through. Uh, so, maybe you go for an edited version. So, if the, a professor at Duke Law School, he actually did this and summarized each down to 40 pages each for a special purpose entity. So, if they were to do it for Enron's case, still that's 120,000 pages of, you know, a highly paid professor doing it in 12-point single-space font, that's which a is a shitload of small. pages still. <laughs> yeah. And if you look at a summary about the summaries, uh, this is exactly what the bankruptcy examiner did for Enron and it was about a 1,000 pages long and that was with the benefit of hindsight. So, what about the summary of the summaries of the summaries of the summaries? And you're still landing at about 200 ridiculously complicated pages and it's only as I said, pulled together with the benefit of hindsight. Yeah. And again, this is actually what they had. So, firstly, all 3 million pages are available. Then you've got the professor who boiled it down to 120,000 pages. You've got the bankruptcy examiner boiled it down to 1,000 pages. You even had the auditing committee. They boiled it down to 200 pages. All of this stuff is there. All of the information is there. It's not like Enron's trying to hide everything. It's just like, man, there's so much information. What's relevant and what's not? And which of these 200 pages of complicated information actually matters to the position of the company? So, this wasn't a puzzle. A puzzle would have grown simpler by all the addition of new pieces of information. There, we just had, what, 3 million pieces of information. <laughs> That's a lot of info. And in an era where companies disclose everything and everything, the idea that our predictions and forecasts are better off with new information is totally wrong. We need more analysts like mm. that hardcore 
wild man who actually went through <laughs> went through it all. It would have taken him a while. <laughs> it certainly would have. So when you look at it, solving puzzles still remains critical in our world today. You know, like where's where's North Korea building their weapons? It's a puzzle with enough information you could find it. But when it comes to mysteries, they're increasingly taking center stage. Puzzles, they're transmitted dependent. The solution is based on the information we're given from the other person. If you've locked up the terrorist or something, you just start chopping out their fingers and toes and um, boil water over their eyeballs and things like that. And all of a sudden, oh, you get right, information. I had to be tortured by you. You've got some sick <laughs> shit in your brain. Mate, it's all worth it. Utilitarian <laughs> point, philosophy point of view, you you just go through that just to get a bit of information. Mysteries, on the other hand, they're receiver dependent. It's not about how much information you get. It's about how you understand the information mm. that's in front of you. So with the Enron case, they gave out all the information you could ever possibly need. And in order to solve it, though, you need to analyze it in the right kind of way. So Enron never actually hid the truth. They made it clearly obvious all the things that they were doing. Maybe they were stretching the truth. They were doing their mark-to-market. They had their special purpose entities. Maybe it was a bit dodgy, but they weren't intentionally committing fraud because they told everybody exactly what they were doing. So in the case of puzzles, we always blame the transmitter we placed the CEO in jail for 24 years and assumed the work is done. But really, it wasn't what well, Malcolm's really saying. It wasn't really Jeffrey's fault here. He disclosed all the information, right? And it was on probably the, the our system to catch him earlier through an analysis. Yeah. I think uh, if Gladwell was defending skilling, I reckon he might have been half a shot. <laughs> Maybe you'll uh, pay Gladwell to come and do it because it's a pretty strong case he made. Yeah, it certainly is. You're saying that mysteries require us to revisit the list of culprits, spread the blame a little more broadly. If, if you can't find the truth, if the prosecution can't find the actual truth of how to solve the mystery, then they're just as at fault as a person who is committing these these atrocities. I guess if you, if you look at it today, uh, coronavirus, is that a puzzle or is that a mystery? Oh, definitely a mystery it's a mystery it's well, a mystery isn't it and yeah. it does uh, if if governments around the world if they define it as a puzzle mm. they'll probably think alright we need to go out there and get more data more mm. testing more testing temperatures all this kind of stuff if you look at it as a mystery everything looks different all of a sudden it, it, the solution is in how do we actually handle mm. this thing so the definition does have real world implications We got a review from Jorge Bravo in Brazil. Uh, great job, guys. You listen to the audio summary and decide if it's worth reading the book. Five stars. Jorge Bravo, appreciate that. That is a pretty sweet name as well. Uh, we love getting these reviews. We love getting messages uh, from people, whether that's a, a message on social media or an email or a contact us through the website or a review on the podcast. Uh, just hearing that we're on the right track is very helpful to us and keeps us going uh, and recording that next episode. So to anyone and everyone who leaves us a review or sends us a message or an email, thank you so much.